Hello and welcome to the London School of Theology podcast. You are listening to our weekly chapel service. Today's speaker is Dr. Cor Benema. London School of Theology. Forming disciples. Resourcing churches. Impacting society. I hope you don't mind that I brought my own pulpit. Um, unfortunately, I've come to an age, if I put my notes here, I cannot read them without glasses, I cannot read them with glasses, <laughs> so I need something close here. But welcome, it's good to see um, a full chapel, um, thank you so much, um, students, I know they're pressing deadlines, um, but I hope you will realize more than ever that community um, is important and thank you to our guests uh, as well. I hope you will have a lovely day and that you will feel at home uh, among us. Um, As Mark already indicated, um, there is a theme this term. We are looking at LST's third core value, which says that we celebrate Christian community exhibiting the gifts and fruit of the Holy Spirit in praise, prayer, sacrament, fellowship and service, and embodying collegiality for the flourishing of LST. Those of you who are here, you already know it. Those of you who are visiting, if you look around, you will see how diverse our community is in terms of ethnicity, nationality, life experiences, and community goes to the heart of what LST is. And this morning, I want to look at Christian community, especially here at LST, but also the churches we represent. And I will use Luke as a lens to look at community. Usually, I like to take a passage and explore that, but this time, we will dip in and out uh, several passages um, in Luke. And in doing so, I want to bring out three characteristics of a Christian community, three aspects, namely that we be a community that celebrates, a community that welcomes, and a community that cares. Let us briefly pray. Father, we thank you that you created community, that we exist in community. And so we ask that you will speak to us and that you will continue to work out your words in our community. For your name's sake. Amen. Amen. So first, then, a community that celebrates. Now, in many Protestant churches, we don't seem to be very good at celebration. We often prefer sobriety and simplicity. But God loves parties. God loves parties. Just read up on the many religious feasts in the Old Testament, celebrating what God has done for his people Israel. Some of these feasts, they they go on for days. And compared to the Jewish feasts, many of our Christian feasts are quite tame. And ironically, the world has become dominant in how to celebrate some of these feasts like Christmas and Easter. But I want to look at some unusual parties in Luke. When you read Luke's gospel, you will quickly realize that Jesus had a busy social diary. He frequently got invited to feasts and dinner parties. 
He spoke about wedding banquets and could even invite himself to someone's house. And wedding banquets and dinner parties center on table fellowship, which indicate acceptance, even forgiveness. Here's a, a little book that I found called Mealtime Habits from a scholar you might have heard of, Conrad, Conrad Gempf. <laughs> oh, there he is. Um, so we are honored to have the author here. And um, this is a very interesting book. If you have never read it, please, please have a look or buy it. Um, <laughs> for, the, for a th theology book, I think it is unique. You probably don't find a kind of an index where you find words like the Talmud and Tartar sauce. <laughs> where you find widows and boomph. Yucky, Zacchaeus and Zonking. Sorry, I get a bit sidetracked. That was not the passage that I wanted to read out. We were with the table fellowship stuff. But Conrad writes this. He says, Jewish home, religious life, happens around whatever passes for the dining room table. An altar is a tablecloth. For a first century Jew, having dinner with someone was making a statement about acceptance and about religious fellowship. Supper was not just sustenance. Supper was spirituality. Doing lunch was doing theology. And so it was. Many parties that Jesus attends are unusual parties. Unusual in the sense that Jesus is partying with the wrong crowd. At least that is how the religious authorities saw it. And one of the first parties happens at the start of Jesus' ministry. If you have a Bible um, or a phone, um, you can turn to Luke 5. It's a short passage. Um, this is where Jesus starts to have his ministry. He, he gathers his first disciples. And then in Luke 5, we read this. Luke 5, 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house. And there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees and the scribes were complaining to his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The religious leaders are upset that Jesus is hanging out with the wrong crowd, with tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus explains that he has come precisely for these kind of people, people who are ill, spiritually ill. And if such people respond well to Jesus, and they often do in Luke, it is a cause for celebration. Likewise, if you were to go to the end of Luke's um, gospel, towards the end of Jesus' ministry in Luke 19, we find another tax collector, Zacchaeus, who responds well to Jesus' call. And again, people could not stand it that Jesus celebrated with a tax collector whom they considered a sinner. 
But Jesus replied to his critics, Today salvation has come to this house, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And in between Luke 5 and 19, these two dinner parties with these tax collectors, we have many more dinner parties. In Luke 14, for example, Jesus has dinner in the house of a religious leader and he tells two parables about a wedding banquet. And what is unusual about these parties is again, the guests. Jesus says on that occasion, when you throw a party, don't invite your friends or family because they may reciprocate the invitation. Rather invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, then you will be blessed because they can't repay you. And so it happens in the second parable, actually even worse, because those who were initially invited declined, giving some lousy excuses, and so the invitation goes out to the uninvited, the disposables, the throwaways. A chapter later in Luke 15, you know the story, the parable of the two sons and their father. And the patient, loving father throws a party when his wayward son returns. And when the older son makes it clear that this is a very bad idea, the father says, son, son, we have to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. We have to celebrate. Friends, we have to be a community that celebrates. Celebration is not optional. Jesus hung out and had parties with unusual crowds. The ill and the unrighteous, the lost and the wayward, the disposables and the throwaways. And nothing has changed. Jesus still hangs out with these kind of people. God's party is for us who shouldn't be there, but we are. We are a community of the undeserving, but God has lavished his outrageous, extravagant love on us. We cannot repay our host, but we can celebrate. We can celebrate that our debt has been canceled. We can celebrate that God wants us at his party. So let's be a community that celebrates. The second aspect, we should be a community that welcomes. And for this aspect, I want to look at another dinner party Jesus was at in Luke 7. Again, if you have a Bible, I will read this passage with you. In Luke 7, verse 36, we find this. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw it, he said to himself, 
if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Therefore she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now the setting here is that of a formal dinner party. And Simon the Pharisee is not a very good host, is he? He provides no water for Jesus' feet, no kiss to welcome Jesus, no anointing his head to honor him. But the so-called sinful woman who gave crashes Simon's dinner party gives Jesus an extravagant welcome. Simon assumes the woman is a sinner, but the story shows that he is grossly mistaken. Jesus' little parable of the two debtors shows that the woman had already been forgiven before, before she had even entered the party. That is clear from verse 47, when Jesus says, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Therefore, she has shown great love. The woman's extravagant act shows the extent of her love and gratitude and is the response to her being forgiven. You see, that little parable that Jesus told shows that the narrative logic is not she loves, therefore she is forgiven, but she is forgiven, therefore she loves. And Jesus then tells Simon to have another look at the woman. In verse 39, Simon saw the woman, but made a wrong judgment. In verse 44, Jesus challenges Simon to have a second look at the woman and see her correctly. Simon thought the woman shouldn't be at this party, but it is Simon who is out of place. When Jesus mentions to Simon, I entered your house. You gave me no water for, for my feet, but she. You gave me no kiss, but she. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she. 
we need to be a welcoming community. A community where we accept and see each other as God does. And sometimes that takes a second look, or a third look, or a fourth look. This passage always reminds me about an incident that I encountered with a student while I was living in, in India. Her name is uh, <coughs> Bindu. And um, if I put it a, a little bit in a, in a Lucan version, uh, a few chapters later you will find the parable of the unjust judge and the persistent widow. Well, this would almost be like the skeptical teacher and the persistent student. And um, Bindu was um, a student, I think in her late 40s, early 40s, um, or late 30s, early 40s, around, around my age when I was, uh, when I was there. Um, she was not married, which is quite unusual in that culture. Um, she had taken early retirement, she was in the civil service, and she wanted to go into ministry. The problem was she, academically, she was not um, very gifted. So with great effort, she went through our MDiv uh, program, so our BA in, this in theology. Um, in the MDiv you could specialize, she wanted to specialize in New Testament, so somehow she even managed to get through her Greek, etc. And I thought that was it. But no, she wanted to do an MTH, and I had great concern. She wanted to do an MTH in New Testament, it was a two-year taught program, and she was quite persistent, and eventually I said, okay, um, I allow you in the program, but let's take it one year at a time, because I thought by myself, maybe after one year she can graduate with a postgraduate uh, diploma. Somehow again, she came through her coursework, and then she started on her MTH uh, thesis, which I had to supervise. And when she handed in sections and a chapter, I read it and tried to understand it, and I was really struggling, because the English was so poor, and I couldn't un understand what she was trying to say. In my mind, I made the connection, modeled English, modeled thinking. Modeled English, modeled thinking. And I thought by myself, what do I need to do here? So I found a friend who knows um, Hindi, the, the mother tongue of Bindu, and I said to her, can you please talk to Bindu because I can't understand what she's trying to do here, I can't help her, this is going nowhere. So she did, and she came back to me, and to my surprise, she was actually saying, well, so they had been talking in Hindi with each other. She says, it's extremely clear what Bindu wants, wants to say. Her thinking is clear. Her problem is she cannot express it in good English. So I had misjudged her. I thought modeled English is modeled thinking. That was a wrong judgment. And I needed to have a second look at her. And sometimes that, does, that happens in life, or often. We are very quick to make up our minds about people. But sometimes, or often, we need to give them a second look or a third look. We need to be a welcoming community. But likewise, in our churches. Is our church a church with hard borders or soft borders? Simon's party 
was a party with hard borders. But we are called to be a welcoming community, to see each other as God sees us. And that brings me to my third and final aspect of community, a community that cares. The early Christian community was a community that showed practical care. And for this, if you allow me, I go to Luke's second volume in the book of Acts. In Acts 2, it was actually the text that uh, was read um, and preached on last, last week. In Acts 2, we, we get a glimpse of this early Christian community. In Acts 2, we read that all who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. Two chapters later, we find something similar. In Acts 4, we read, Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So here, this is a similar dynamic in Acts 2 and Acts 4. And twice you have that phrase, as any had need. As any had need. Need is the indicator for the extent of our care. Need is the indicator for the extent of our care. Sometimes when it comes to this about giving, etc., sometimes I hear discussions um, that we should tithe, which we can find in the Old Testament, etc., and others say, no, we should, we should give more. And I think this is perhaps the, the wrong way of looking at it. We should give till there is no longer any need. Need is the indicator for our giving. Poverty and economic imbalances have sharply increased in the UK over the past decade. According to the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, 20% of the UK population is in poverty. 20%. The choice between heating or eating has become extremely real for too many people. And the UK has absolutely enough resources to ensure that there is no need. The problem is that there is not sufficient political will to do so. The four richest Britons alone have a total wealth of 42 billion pounds or maybe something that makes more sense, the richest 1% of Britons hold more wealth than 70% of UK population. The richest 1% of Britons hold more wealth than 70% of the UK population. Ridiculous. As a Christian community, 
We are called to be radically countercultural when it comes to possessions. Luke, not only in the passages that we read, you, you should read the whole of Luke's gospel, Luke stresses one's attitude towards possessions and how we can use them to share and alleviate need. The early Christian community practiced a radical economic redistribution of possessions to ensure that there was no needy person among them. Now Luke, or Jesus, may have been radical, but it was not unique. This was always, has always been God's intention. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, for example, we read, if there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking the seventh year, the year of remission, is near, and therefore view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so, for on this account the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. The Apostle Paul has a similar e economic policy for his churches. Paul, when you read his letters, he spent a great deal of time and effort to get a collection from his churches for the impoverished mother church in Jerusalem. And in that context, he writes this to the Corinthians. He says, I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance may be for your need, in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. Now, I like this translation, fair balance, for the Greek word isotes. It, it's beautiful, because it doesn't say that everyone has exactly the same, but that there is a fair balance between the haves and the have-nots. May we also be a community that cares, a community where there is a fair balance, where every need is catered for. Some may need material help. Others may need your time, your prayers, your encouragement. Whatever it is, let there be no need among us. Let me bring it together a bit. Last term, as Mark said, we, we, we looked at the theme of the canon of scripture at, as our second core, vol, uh, core value. And this term at the third core value of community. And this third value is really about practical theology. It is in living together that shows how we are really shaped by the Bible as the supreme authority for faith and life. 
And looking at the Bible through a Lucan lens that we briefly did this morning, we realized that the VR and should be a community that celebrates, a community that welcomes, a community that cares. We must be a celebrating community because God is throwing a party for the undeserving and lavishes his love, his kindness, his goodness on us. We celebrate because we are overjoyed and amazed that Jesus wants to hang out with people like us. Secondly, we should be a welcoming community that has the courage and the grace to see each other as God sees us, as forgiven sinners. And since God is still at work in all of us, we should realize that we still have rough edges, less pleasant character traits, and less than perfect behavior at times. But as Paul said, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work in or among us will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. And thirdly, we must be a caring community, showing a practical living together that addresses our needs. We should be sensitive and attentive towards the needs of the other, elevating their interests over ours and be prepared to make difficult sacrifices for the well-being of the other and the flourishing of our community. May it be so. Thank you for listening to the London School of Theology podcast. To find out more about LSD and our courses, please visit our website.